Some of you may be familiar with Presbyterian minister Paul Tripp. His primary ministry is teaching, and we use his parenting and marriage materials here at Holy Trinity. A number of years ago, he taught a pastoral counseling course at a seminary near his home. The course was required of all third-year students seeking ordination. However, many of his students viewed it as an imposition. They would have preferred taking a class on doctrine or biblical exegesis. As you might imagine, it's not easy teaching people who think you're wasting their time. So after the first year, Tripp decided to make some changes to the way he taught the course. The following semester, he began each class on how to care pastorally for members of a congregation with illustrations from his experience as a pastor. He told stories of families and marriages in crisis, of tempers that flared between members of small groups, and of church members profoundly broken by sin, either their own sin or that of others against them. His objective was to keep telling such stories until his students got the message that they were going to need what he wanted to teach them. Well, one day early in the semester, in the middle of one of his stories, a student called out, all right, we know we're going to have these projects in our churches. Just tell us what to do with them so we can get back to the work of ministry. Well, Tripp was silent for a moment, and then he asked the student to repeat the term he had used for people in difficulty. As his fellow seminarians struggled to contain their laughter, the student mumbled, projects. This was what is called a teachable moment. Tripp writes that this young man saw lost and struggling people as impediments to what he wanted to do, and the need to respond to them as a huge interference. His view of ministry centered on well-delivered sermons and well-attended programs that would produce a thriving and growing congregation. He saw the church as a well-designed, well-led, successful organization. But when I look at the church, says Tripp, I see a hospital full of people in various stages of dealing with the disease of sin. Paul Tripp is not the first person to describe the church as a hospital for people dealing with sin. This metaphor has been used many times over the centuries to convey the fact that all of us, without exception, have been infected with sin, a condition that is ultimately fatal and which causes a lot of heartache. Some of the heartache is self-inflicted, and some of it other people inflict on us and we on them. The only hope for a full recovery from sin and its effects is to be under the care of Jesus, the great physician who ministers to us 
in and through the church, and who alone has the medicine we all need. So today, in our sermon series entitled, Why Church?, we are going to consider what it means for the church in general, and for our church in particular, to be a hospital for people recovering from sin. Our reading this morning from Mark's Gospel provides us with some insight into the notion of sin being a sickness and of Jesus being the remedy for it. It begins as Jesus invites Levi, a tax collector, to be one of his followers. Tax collectors were Jewish men in the employ of the Roman government. Their job was to sit at a booth and collect a tax from people crossing over from one territory into another. Then, as now, nobody liked having to pay their tax. And back then, many tax collectors got away with skimming additional money from their travelers. But even if Levi had been honest, tax collectors were despised by the people, considered no better than murderers and robbers, and were excommunicated from the synagogue. Jesus, who made a point of seeking out such people, went to Levi's home for dinner. And in addition to Jesus and his disciples, there were many tax collectors and sinners present. Like Levi, many of the guests were also followers of Jesus. Now, Jesus' presence at this gathering did not escape the notice of the scribes and Pharisees who complained about him to his disciples. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus responded to their criticism by repeating a traditional proverb. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. To which he added, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus was making a connection here between being sick and being a sinner although he was not suggesting that there may be some people who do not need to be under his care. No one escapes succumbing to the disease of sin. The scribes and the Pharisees are sin-sick too, but they can't see it. For them and for us, there is no hope of recovery apart from Jesus. We are all equally in need of a cure, which we cannot bring about on our own. Our recovery begins when we submit to Jesus as Lord and Savior. However, it is important to keep in mind that recovery from sin is a lifelong process. It doesn't happen overnight. Our status before God changes immediately through faith in Jesus. But our natural self, which is innately full of idolatry and pride and selfishness, has not yet been fully transformed. So although the power of sin to define our past and determine our future has been broken through the death of Jesus on the cross, 
the presence of sin still remains with us. It's like winning a war and yet still having to contend with enemy soldiers lurking around who haven't yet surrendered. Now, the Holy Spirit is at work in us, progressively delivering us from the remaining hold sin has on our lives. And at the same time, He is working into us the nature of Jesus. However, our recovery won't be complete until our death and we see Jesus face to face. So in the meantime, the Holy Spirit calls us into fellowship with other believers, all of whom, like us, are in recovery from sin. Together, we are the church, an imperfect entity where we will experience both the brokenness that is still in one another and the glorious grace of Jesus Christ working in us and through us. So, it is helpful to think of the church as a kind of hospital, a place where we come to get well and where we do not have to pretend we already are, a place where we support one another in our recovery from sin and are not afraid to reveal the extent of our brokenness a place where we welcome all sinners seeking the Jesus cure, and from where we go out looking for those who have yet to hear about him. This hospital is not always going to be efficient, though, because our sin will get in one another's way. We will be selfish and thoughtless and arrogant at times, and we should expect our life together to be messy. So, part of the treatment program will involve learning how to handle, in a Christ-like way, the sin that still remains in each other. For this, we will need three key ingredients, distilled from chapter 3 of Paul's letter to the Colossians. We will need compassion, truth, and forgiveness. Having compassion, particularly in view of the sin that still remains in one another, means that we will not respond as a Pharisee would to a tax collector when confronted with the brokenness of a brother or sister in Christ. We will pray for him or her instead of feeling morally superior. We will seek to see Jesus in them despite the sin and will keep in mind just how easy it is to do the very thing you hate instead of the good you wanted to do. Having compassion for one another does not mean we ignore sin. It does mean we will not forget that we too are in recovery from sin. The second key ingredient is to speak the truth in love, particularly about the sin we encounter in one another. Now, my guess is that some of us would prefer to avoid speaking directly to a brother or sister in Christ 
whom we think has sinned against us. After all, our natural inclination is to tell someone else instead of the person who has offended us. Yet if we seek to have compassion for one another in our struggles with sin, we will not avoid such conversations because they offer an opportunity for repentance and for further growth in Christ-likeness. Learning how to speak the truth in love well can be a messy and uncomfortable process, like learning a foreign language. But by being willing to risk embarrassment and failure, we give the Holy Spirit an opportunity to work more of Jesus' nature into us. You see, change in us happens when we come to the end of our own strength and ability, admit we need help, and reach out for Jesus. Avoiding unpleasantness will not be helpful to anyone. Making mistakes and learning from them is part of the process of being transformed into the likeness of Jesus. Honestly, I wish the Holy Spirit could work the sin out of me and work more of Jesus into me if I just read a book about it. Wouldn't that be nice? Very easy. I would much prefer to go on a retreat by myself and come back more deeply transformed into the likeness of Jesus. But it doesn't happen that way. A lot of good can come from reading a book and from going on a retreat, but profound growth in Christ-likeness happens in the midst of the mess. It occurs as we engage with fellow recovering sinners, make mistakes, and learn from them. Which brings us to forgiveness, the third key ingredient. In a hospital full of people in various stages of dealing with the disease of sin, forgiveness is needed in abundant supply. Yet, as C.S. Lewis wrote, everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. What we need to remember is that forgiveness is the basis for our relationship with God. Without it, we would have no future, only a past. Being forgiven is what we all have in common. And in Jesus, who is the means of our forgiveness, we are called to give as we have received. In offering forgiveness to someone, we're not condoning their sin. We're not pretending it did not occur, nor are we depending upon our feelings to guide us. We are choosing instead to be guided by the Holy Spirit as we draw upon the grace we have received through Jesus and extend it to another. What someone does with the forgiveness we offer him or her is beyond our control.
in stepping up to forgive, whether we feel like it or not. We place ourselves in a position for the Holy Spirit to work more of the love and patience and humility of Jesus into us. We are also called to seek out and welcome into our fellowship people who, like us, are dealing with the disease of sin, although they may not know this about themselves yet. And some of the people that we seek out and welcome will be profoundly broken by sin, by addiction, abuse, abandonment. The church's mission is to be a hospital for all sinners. So in order to fulfill our mission, we will need to have in place good boundaries so that the struggles of those suffering immensely from sin and its effects do not overwhelm us. Now, I've seen some churches do this well, seek out, come alongside, and welcome into their midst those who are suffering immensely. The members of these churches understand that they cannot fix someone's brokenness nor can they take away someone's pain. Only Jesus can do that. They diligently practice compassion, truth-telling, and forgiveness. And they have learned how to pray for, to love, to hold accountable, and to encourage someone without doing for him or her what he or she must do for themselves through the Holy Spirit. Knowing what to give, when to give it, and when to hold back and wait is really important to the health of a fellow patient and to ours. And I highly recommend the book Boundaries by Christian therapists Dr. Henry Cloud and Dr. John Towson. They discuss and demonstrate how to set healthy boundaries so that we do not make matters worse in our attempts to care for fellow patients. In thinking about the church, I've reached the conclusion that a good many Christians are confused about its mission. Some think of it as a kind of social club. Some as a refuge from the world, and others as a Fortune 500 company in the making. But in the words of Paul Tripp, the church's mission is to be a conversion, confession, repentance, reconciliation, forgiveness, and sanctification center, where flawed people place their trust in Christ, gather to know and love Him better, and learn to love others as He designed. The church is messy and inefficient, but it is God's wonderful mess, the place where he radically transforms hearts and lives. This is our mission, to be a hospital of sorts for people recovering from the disease of sin. 
At this hospital, we are always out recruiting more patients. And from it, we can be transferred, but never discharged. It is a hospital where the grace of Jesus Christ is continually working in us and through us the cure we all need. Together, we've witnessed so much of his grace over the years. And in the years to come, there is much more awaiting us as we live into our mission. Amen.